This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. A range of physical restraint practices are routinely employed in classrooms. Physical restraint refers to practices that restrict the free movement of a child. Seclusion, also commonly used in schools, refers to an involuntary deprivation of freedom. Many administrators and teachers want to do their level best by their students. However, there are often vague guidelines about appropriate and measured use of disciplinary practices. An overuse of techniques like physical restraint and seclusion has left students terrified, their parents concerned, and exposed glaring deficits in classroom management techniques. Today, we discuss the use of physical restraints and seclusion in Manitoba schools. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. I hope that you're staying safe wherever you are and whatever you're doing. If you'd like to keep up with the AMI-audio coverage around COVID-19, please visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. A quick note, today's conversation is a necessary conversation about the use of physical restraint and seclusion especially in special ed classrooms in the province of Manitoba. I don't think this is a problem that is specific to Manitoba, and so I would invite listeners from all over the country to tune into this conversation. The one thing I will say, though, is I acknowledge it's also a difficult conversation. Please reach out to a friend's family, maybe a colleague, if you feel like some of this content is triggering Mm -hmm. to you. Over the course of the conversation, I will give out a couple of phone numbers if you need a little bit of additional support. My guest right now is Dr. Nadine Bartlett, Assistant Professor at the Educational Administration, Foundations, and Psychology Department at the University of Manitoba. She recently published a paper which examines the use of seclusion and physical restraint in Manitoba schools. Dr. Bartlett, thank you so much for being on the program. Welcome to The Pulse. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the substance of your report, I just want to get some definitions from you. What do you understand by seclusion? And when I say what is what do you mean by seclusion, I'm also referring to the fact that there might be instances where a child is voluntarily put into time out, and I'm assuming that's not seclusion. So what is the definition of seclusion? Um, Well, seclusion is very different. Um, Seclusion is meant to be a crisis response, and it involves the placement of a student in a space where they don't have the free will to exit. And so, um, you know, having a student sit at their desk for a few minutes is a timeout, um, but they're Mm -hmm. not being completely removed from the environment, and they have the free will to return or to move to another area. But when we talk about seclusion, it means being placed in a space and being restricted from exiting. Mm -hmm. And I think physical restraint is another 
practice that encompasses a lot. What do you mean by physical restraint? Well, a physical restraint procedure, again, should also be only used in a crisis. It's considered a crisis response. Um, but it involves limiting the freedom of movement of a, of a student or an individual. So holding them um, and, and having them immobile for a, a period of time. As we inch closer to your study, one of the things that you talk about is the legal frameworks that dictate the use of practices like seclusion and physical restraint. So when we think about the province of Manitoba, what are some of the legal frameworks in place that might set some guidelines around when and where it's appropriate to make use of practices like seclusion or physical restraint? Well, um, seclusion and physical restraint in Manitoba aren't regulated in schools. There are certainly other sort of legal frameworks around, you know, abuse of children, um, but they are more broad and they're not specific to the school um, environment. And so, I mean, that's what I looked at in my study is what kind of regulation is happening in schools. Certainly, when we think of health settings or when we think of the criminal justice setting, those environments have specific regulations. Um, but in schools, we don't necessarily have that same level of accountability and oversight. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the fact that Manitoba, as far as I know, does have provincial accessibility legislation. And if it's anything like Ontario, there are uh, rules and regulations therein uh, about you know the education field and sector. So isn't there anything in the provincial accessibility legislation that would mandate when you could use seclusion, for example, or physical restraint? No, not in our province that I'm aware of. Um, accessibility looks at sort of accessibility of spaces and more looking at the built environment. And so when we talk about the treatment of students, um, with, in particular students with disabilities, uh, restraint and seclusion aren't covered in that context. Mm. But just staying with the legal framework, one of the other things that I do know is that Canada is a signatory to the conventions of the, on, the pers- on the rights of, pers- of persons with disabilities, also a signatory to the conventions on the right of the child. Really important things to sign on to. Uh, don't any of those conventions uh, deal with the use of seclusion? I mean, we're talking about the restriction of freedom, the restriction of movement. So how do those UN conventions come into play? Well, certainly they do. They do um, come into play in our in our country. And, and I would argue, and I have in my report uh, and in another scholarly manuscript I've written on this, that, that we are actually breaching. We're not upholding the requirements um, of, the, uh, of the UN um, conventions. And so I think that's highly problematic. So when we look at those international contexts, um, we're definitely breaking some of the requirements, um, in particular provisions regarding cruel and inhumane treatment. Um, that are covered within those conventions. Um, so I think it's, it's something we need to look at as Canadians. One of the things that comes up for me is, and I said this right off the top of the program as well, this mm-hmm. issue that's specific to Manitoba. So how are other jurisdictions in Canada, but also maybe in the United States, handling the use of seclusion and physical restraint? Okay. Um, well, maybe I'll start with the United States. And I, I sure. you know, I always preface that by saying I don't think that the, the United States necessarily is a model that we want to turn to in terms of, um, you know, supporting students with disabilities in schools, but um, for many reasons. But what I will say is that um, they have state requirements around regulating the use of restraint and seclusion in a majority of the U.S. states. And at a federal level, mm-hmm. they've established um, documents with recommendations and requirements around safety and monitoring and reporting to parents. And um, so there's regulation. And I think 
there are some elements of the regulatory policies that we should be looking to in Canada for guidance. So in in the United States, there's definitely a higher level of of accountability. And when we look at Canada, um, I just finished a policy analysis looking sort of across our country about, you know, which provinces or territories have regulation, which don't. And um, there are some provinces who do regulate restraint and seclusion, uh, and those would be Alberta, specific to education within the realm of education. Uh, and those would be Alberta, BC, New Brunswick, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia and PEI. Mm-hmm. So they have some form of provincial mandate with varying degrees of enforceability in those jurisdictions. And the most comprehensive uh, would be Alberta and, uh, and also Prince Edward Island. So in terms of, um, and those are most more recent policies, both developed in 2019. And so um, while there are still some holes and gaps within, I think, each of those provinces, there are certainly more significant gaps and holes uh, in the rest of Canada relative to this area. And certainly here in Manitoba, our legislation is really silent on this issue. I'm speaking to Dr. Nadine Bartlett, Assistant Professor at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Bartlett, in your study, who did you talk to? What was your methodology? How many responses did you get? Well, it was really an exploratory study, and it was it was small in scale. Um, we did an anonymous um, online survey, and uh, we had 62 parents participate. And I should say that the survey that we did was actually um, very similar to a, a study that was done in British Columbia and in Alberta. So we took the surveys that were used in those provinces around re- a restraint and seclusion, and we replicated it in our province. And so um, while our sample size was small, um, it was very concerning because, uh, and I, I say this in the report, you know, one story of the physical restraint or seclusion of a child with a disability is one story too many. And so um, I was happy that it was not um, widespread, that we didn't receive hundreds of responses. Mm-hmm. But I think I should preface it that la- we did the survey last summer, um, just at the beginning of the summer. And I think the timing may have limited um, the number of parents who had the opportunity to, uh, to respond. Uh, just because subsequent to the survey, I have received you know, email contact from families who said, mm-hmm. oh, I would have participated in your survey. I didn't see it. Uh, until it, you know the results came out and um, you know it's received some media attention. So that mm-hmm. just tells me that um, you know there there's more uh, out there. And I don't think we needed more responses. I like I said, I think one is enough to warrant further mm-hmm. investigation and the development of regulation. Paint us a picture of some of what you uh, encountered when you conducted the surveys and the responses. What were some of the common uh, stories and the themes that came across to you? Were there particular age groups or students with particular types of disabilities that were especially vulnerable to seclusion or physical restraint? Yeah, um, certainly we asked those questions around, you know, the demographic pieces around the age of of the students. Certainly we found that uh, younger students were more vulnerable and that aligns with other research that was done in BC and Alberta, as well as um, research that, that's been done in the United States. We know that younger students, um, and in particular students on the autism spectrum, were the population identified as most vulnerable. Uh, but it wasn't limited to students with autism, certainly uh, students with other uh, intellectual disabilities, as well as um, mental health challenges, were also um, reported as having experienced restraint and seclusion. In, in terms of things that, you know, there were many things that were concerning. One of them that, um, you know, stands out when we talk about physical restraint, there were some parents that reported 
what are called sort of prone or supine holds, so meaning that their child had been held face down and immobilized in, in sort of a restraint pos- uh, position. And what we know in other jurisdictions, whether that be in the area of you know youth justice, criminal justice, um, health settings, those kinds of holds and restraints are banned because mm-hmm. um, they're associated with a high risk of restraint-related asphyxia and death. And so mm-hmm. that was certainly something that stood out. And when we talk about seclusion, there were parents who said that their children were restrained or secluded in a space where the inside doorknob had been modified. So that that means that, you know, their child couldn't exit because there was no um, doorknob that could be turned. And again, that Mm -hmm. breaks not only like cruel and inhumane treatment, but also when we talk about fire and uh, code regulations, um, that's Mm -hmm. a further breach of those kinds of uh, regulations in schools that absolutely need to be followed. So many shocking revelations in this. One of the things I've been wondering about then is were parents notified in a timely fashion? I mean, if we're talking about putting children in uh, supine holes or putting them in spaces for seclusion where they can't get out of because there isn't a doorknob on the inside, that's something that I think as a parent, I would really want to know about. Do you know if parents are notified on a regular basis? Well, that was something we were really concerned about was the timely notification to parents thinking that if something was used in terms of physical restraint or seclusion, it should only be used in a crisis where there was an immediate um, threat to physical safety and that parents should absolutely be notified in a timely fashion. And so when we asked that question, what we learned was that parents reported sometimes being told about the incident much after the fact by their child. And 90% of parents said they did not receive written notification. So, the fact that they weren't receiving the details in writing and that if they were informed, they were often informed after the fact and sometimes by their child was highly problematic. And in a recent policy scan, I've looked at, you know, what are the reporting requirements in in Canada around this issue? And what I discovered was that they were highly variable. In the United States, for instance, um, there is a 24-hour rule that parents must be informed within within 24 hours of restraint or seclusion being used. And um, while Alberta has uh, adopted that in their most recent legislation, it's not something that you see um, elsewhere. I'm speaking to Dr. Nadine Bartlett from the University of Manitoba. We're talking about the use of physical restraint and seclusion in Manitoba schools. If this conversation is hard to listen to, it's a nevertheless an important conversation. But if you find yourself in crisis, please reach out to the Canada Suicide Prevention Line at one 456 4566 That's 1-833-456-4566. Or you can text... 45645 and reach out to get some help. Dr. Bartlett, one of the things you said earlier on in our conversation is that the way that we conceived of using seclusion or physical restraint would be as a last resort. In hearing you talk, though, I get the sense that it's something that's being used quite often, even when it may not necessarily be that last resort. Am I am I reading the tea leaves correctly here? Yeah, and, and certainly that was a finding in the study that, that some parents reported um, sort of the daily use of, of restraint and seclusion. And, and that was particularly worrisome. And it speaks to um, the fact that when there aren't regulations regarding restraint and seclusion, there's a danger that these practices become normalized or routine. Uh, and there's a parent advocacy organization uh, in the United States. They're called Appraise. And they've written extensively on this. And um, they talk about 
when there isn't regulation, uh, and these kinds of practices are actually included in a student's education plan, like whether that be a behavior plan or an IEP, it really sanctions their use and normalizes it. And they actually argue that there, there's some um, possibility that teachers can then think, well, you know, it's okay to use this approach. This is how this student learns best, or that the parents have now signed off on it. And so it becomes this normalized routine practice for students. And, and certainly that was, you know, a finding in, in the study. What have teachers said about the study? Have you had any reaction from people who work within the education system? Were they surprised by your findings? Well, um, the Manitoba Teachers Society here in our province was asked to comment on the report. And what I was pleased uh, to hear from their response was that they said they were very open to um, uh, regulation and um, specific requirements in these practices. And so I think that was uh, encouraging. I think they recognize teachers need, they need guidance, but one of the most important things they need are, is training. And that's one of the recommendations in my report is around specific training protocols and, and Manitoba Teacher Society, which is the union representing um, almost 14,000 teachers in our province who supported that recommendation. Is part of the problem the fact that teachers are often overworked and under-resourced? Are we sort of dealing with the aftermath of a school system or an education system that just isn't adequately funded to support special needs students? I certainly, I think that plays a role. One of my recommendations uh, are about, you know, it's about training and resources to implement evidence-based, positive, and proactive alternatives to restraint and seclusion. So there needs to be adequate resourcing for teachers to have training and adequate staffing. So when we talk about you know, um, resource teachers, learning support teachers, educational assistants. I mean, it's really a team effort, and we need to have those kinds of um, supports readily available in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to inquire about is what the impact of this is on students, the long-term impact of students who undergo seclusion or physical restraint on a very regular basis in school. Well, um, in, in when we talk about restraint and seclusion, uh, 90% of the parents talked about how traumatizing it had been for their child. Um, students, you know, said, didn't want to attend school, so there was increased school avoidance. Uh, parents also said that their child had become more escalated. Um, and there were also um, a fewer number, but some reported physical injury as well. One of the things I'd like to have done, and I recommend this in the report, is a provincial audit of all of our schools and the kinds of spaces that currently exist. Uh, in addition to one parent reporting, or two parents actually, saying that doorknob was modified, another parent talked about a four-by-four four kind of closet being used. So I think mm -hmm. first we need to have an audit and be transparent about what spaces exist. And after that audit, set very clear parameters about the kinds of spaces that we have in our schools. Um, I think one of the issues is students benefit from the use of sensory spaces that are used proactively for calming. Sometimes is that those spaces are dual purpose. So that sometimes they're used proactively for calming and sometimes they're used um, in crisis for seclusion. And I think we need some clarity about those procedures as well. But definitely an audit and um, there absolutely should regulations that align with fire code and also just with basic human rights. Um, and so I think that's something that we can't wait on. It, it needs to be done in a timely manner. The, you mentioned training for teachers, which no one disputes is a good thing, but what about consultation, not just consultation so that you get input from teachers into uh, any proposed guidelines and regulations and also consultations with parents and guardians? Isn't that helpful? Well, 
Absolutely. And and that is part of my, my recommendation um, is that we do consult with all stakeholders and, and you know, seek their guidance about what would be deemed uh, appropriate. So do you also make recommendations about timely reporting and even data collection so that we can understand better or school boards can understand better how prevalent it really is? Absolutely. So in addition to, you know, notifying parents within 24 hours, and I think the meeting afterwards that you can look at alternatives so it doesn't happen again is critical. And that's not been required. Um, And like I said, when it's not, you know, when there isn't a meeting, there isn't a discussion, there's that risk again of normalization. I've also Mm -hmm. recommended that school division, so at the school level, it, it be tracked. At the school division or district level, there be accountability and tracking. And finally, at the provincial level, that data be collected um, to shine a light on it, but also to identify sites where restraint and seclusion aren't being used, because mm-hmm. it's those kinds of spaces that we need to look to for guidance, and those are the kinds of environments that we might want to replicate and learn from. So there needs to be accountability on multiple levels. Um, and in the absence of, like, accountability isn't a panacea. It's not going to solve this issue. But I think it's going to bring attention to it, and regulation will help. Uh, lesson is used. I'm speaking to Dr. Nadine Bartlett from the University of Manitoba about a recent study that she published, which looks at the use of seclusion and physical restraint in Manitoba schools. What an interesting way to sort of wrap up the conversation as we head towards our last few minutes here. You talked about looking towards alternatives and looking at other models. So give us a sense of what some of those alternatives could look like. Well, um, the alternatives there are many, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about uh, models such as gentle teaching, where we look at relationship development, those are the focus of our you know, teacher training and our interaction is building relationship, fostering relationship with students. Um, and also, uh, there's a model called PBIS, Positive Behavior Interventions and Support, which focuses on um, positive reinforcement um, as opposed to punitive or reactionary kinds of measures. And so there's been studies in other jurisdictions where PBIS, positive behavior intervention supports, is used, and there is a reduction in the use of physical restraint and seclusion. And also specific training in de-escalation and calming strategies. That needs to be our focus. And regrettably, Mm -hmm. there's been a focus on models such as nonviolent crisis intervention. And while they have a component on de-escalation, they also teach restraint procedures. And I think we need to shift our focus to de-escalation procedures and that be the bulk of the training. Mm -hmm. One other thing I'll ask just in closing is whether if you're a concerned parent, there is any kind of provincial body that you could reach out to now or if something needs to be set up, perhaps an ombudsman office of some kind. Mm -hmm. Within the province of Manitoba, there is the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth, and there are comparable authorities within other provinces in Canada. I know the Manitoba Advocate um, is interested in my report, and I'm actually presenting to them in August. And they are a body that um, regulates procedures and can hold the government accountable for the development of regulations. And so um, I'm hopeful that uh, with their assistance, uh, that we will be able to push forward um, required regulations um, on this important issue. Dr. Bartlett, thank you very much for speaking to us. It's such an important conversation, and I really appreciate that you took some time out of your day to discuss it with us. Thank you, Juita, for having me.
That was Dr. Nadine Bartlett from the University of Manitoba, who talked about a recent paper discussing the use of physical restraint and seclusion in Manitoba schools. You can find my conversation with Dr. Bartlett, as well as previous episodes on The Pulse on your favorite podcast platforms. As we wrap up here, I'd like to echo the point about the need for restorative approaches and alternatives that embrace the diversity of our student population and allow students of all abilities to thrive in a classroom environment. Please head on over to ami.ca forward on the pulse we'll make sure to include a couple of other remarks and resources on our show blog page i'd like to thank dr nadine bartlett for being on the program today the technical producer for the pulse is nisreen abdul majid andy frank is the manager of ami audio with thanks going to paula denine technical supervisor most of all thank you for listening to the program i've been your host joita gupta and this has been the pulse on ami audio have a wonderful day was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.